Hi, I'm John Byrne with Poets and Quants. Welcome to Business Casual, our weekly podcast with my co-host, Maria Wickvilla, and Caroline D'Arte Edwards. You know who they are. You've been listening to us for months, haven't you? <laughs> well, this week is a special one for Poets and Quants. We are celebrating our 10th anniversary. We launched our first site, Poets and Quants, on 8 That's August 9th of 2010. It's gone by really fast, and it's been quite a ride. For those of you who may or may not know, you know, we now have five websites. We cover undergraduate business education. We cover law schools. We cover the executive MBA market. We cover social enterprise. But obviously, poetsandquants.com is the driver of our company, and frankly, the one I pour my most passion and love into. All this month, we're doing a whole series of stories around our 10th anniversary. And you can just come to the website and you'll start seeing them. The first one is going to be a narrative uh, from me on the journey so far and what I've learned as an entrepreneur. All my life, I had been a writer, an editor, and an author, but never anyone who had to reach into his own pockets and pay staff money and uh, manage a P&L and um, account for 401k plans and healthcare and hire and recruit people and plot strategy and plan new product innovations. So it's been a really incredible experience for me. So one of the things we wanted to do today with Maria and Caroline is to look back in the past 10 years and identify and talk a little bit about the trends that have really shaped business education. There are a good number of them. We're actually going to have a story on this. But, you know, when I'm, when I'm thinking about this, I, you know, there are some clear trends that we've written about in the past, but here we can kind of marshal them all together. And then at the end of the podcast, and I'm sure you'll want to wait around for this, we are each going to nominate a school of the decade. We are doing a piece on uh, what we believe is the school of the decade, along with the dean of the decade, the biggest trends that have occurred in the past 10 years, what we think is going to happen in the next 10, our most popular stories. Oh, you'll love this one. The biggest scandals in the past 10 years. We love that. We love to be provocative. Anyway, Caroline, what would you say is one of the big trends that you've noticed in the past 10 years in graduate management education? Hmm. Well, the first one that jumps to my mind, and this is coming from my background as an admissions director and an admissions coach, and now reading applications for um, actually 15 years, because I joined INSEAD as admissions director back in 2005. And I've seen a big change in the stories that candidates tell about themselves and their aspirations for the future. And a big part of that is so many candidates now, and I think, you know, the majority of candidates are talking about how they want to have a positive impact and how they want to, you know, use their careers to do something worthwhile and not just do well for themselves, but to have a positive impact on society and a positive impact on the communities around them. And that wasn't really so much the case. That was much more sort of a niche interest <laughs> that are 15 years ago. And that's become very mainstream. And the schools have responded to that. There are a lot of courses uh, a lot of centers at the schools that focus on social impact, how business can be leveraged for a positive impact on society. And that that has become, 
you know, something that's really core to what business schools are trying to do and what the students are looking to learn from their experience at business school and, and how they want to sort of shape their careers going forward. And I think that that's a trend that is not necessarily been led by business schools, but actually led by students, don't you yes. think? Yes, I think so. I think the narrative has come from the students and that's something that they've been pushing for. And it's it's sort of a generational thing and, and schools have responded to that. And, and And, you know, many of them have really you know, jumped on this and made this a core part of what they're doing. And and they've responded to this in a very meaningful way. And if you had to pick out a school or two that's doing the best job on social innovations, impact investing, social enterprise, which one would it be? Mm. Well, I think, you know, Stanford has been working in that area for many, many years. And that's probably something that has been core to Stanford Business School, Graduate School of Business for for longer than perhaps any other school. But also, you know, when I was working at INSEAD, you know, that was something that was, uh, the school was investing in increasingly and and has really become a core part of the mission under the current dean. So I think schools have sort of really internalized this in their DNA. But I would say that Stanford is probably the school that stands out as having had that in their DNA for the longest time. True. What trend immediately comes to mind, Maria, for you? I think for me, the shifting focus towards entrepreneurship. I think, you know, when I was in business school, I enrolled about, what, 17 years ago? And uh, it was definitely long ago? Oh, my God. You sound so young. (laughs) Well, thank you. We are still young. (laughs) I apply apply a nightly moisturizer to my vocal cords. (laughs) It works. (laughs) <laughs> um, I appreciate that, John. Uh, I will send you your check for your co- your compliment in, in the mail. Um, no, so I think I think entrepreneurship. You know, I think when I was at school a long time ago, yeah, maybe a few people might be interested in entrepreneurship, but we were just coming out of the big tech crash of two thousand and one. Um, and so I think a lot of people had maybe not soured on it, but it was certainly not the frenzy it had been in the late nineties. And uh, so I think most people in business school were either looking to join large corporations or large banks or large consulting firms. Uh, and so I think that there's definitely been a shift uh, that's accelerating where more and more schools, and I do think this is also student-led, where students are coming in and saying, look, I want to I want to be my own boss. I want to start my own company. Uh, I saw that movie, The Social Network, and in it, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, one minute he's in his dorm room writing a couple of equations on a window, and then the next minute he's a billionaire, and I want that for myself. Uh, and so I wanted, to, you know, and so I do think that a lot of schools where as entrepreneurship maybe was a niche off to the side, uh, I do think that more of them are making it, if not a core offering, then at least incorporating entrepreneurial thinking into more of their coursework. And I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's really true. And I know that what well, Harvard Business School is a good example. The entrepreneurship teaching group is the second largest in the school. And uh, the way entrepreneurship teaching has morphed is kind of interesting, too. You know, in the beginning, it was about, okay, you could use our MBA program as an incubation lab to literally launch your company. And it's kind of morphed into uh, teaching an entrepreneurial mindset because even big companies want people who can do things with minimal resources and not get blocked by the bureaucracy. So in many cases, schools are actually teaching people how to be more nimble, how to be more innovative in uh, structured companies. And of course, there are plenty of uh, schools that have really 
uh, step down on the accelerator in regards to helping people start their own companies through competitions that, that actually award money to, to students for their startups, helping them collaborate with people that are outside the business school, in particular computer science and engineering uh, graduate students as well. It's a very big deal and tremendous resources have been piled into this area in the past 10 years. I totally agree. You know, another interesting thing to me, and I think this is a real positive, is basically the momentum to reach gender parity. Now, there are a few schools only that have actually reached gender parity, but there's no doubt that the best schools have dramatically increased the proportion of women who are in their MBA programs. And both of you two will know that, you know, it's often been said in the past that one difficulty in, in getting more women to come to business school was the fact that many women who are looking at their lives in a more total way want to get their schooling over and done with earlier than men, which is why women were getting much more interested in law school and med school compared to business school. That seems to have changed. Also, I think what prevented a lot of women from wanting to go and get an MBA was the fact that there was a perception that there was a real glass ceiling and it was almost impenetrable to break. Very male-oriented business was, uh, still is, let's face it. But the schools have done a really good job, I think, in really making their programs more attractive to women. And more importantly, when women come to them, making them feel really included. What do you two think of that? Yeah, I think that schools have set this as a clear goal and they've worked very hard at it over many years, as, as you've said. And there's actually been quite a bit of competition between schools to increase that percentage and, and attract top women candidates. And the schools have, you know, so it's been a very much long-term effort. I remember when I started at INSEAD, you know, looking at, because INSEAD, of course, has a very global applicant pool and no dominant nationality. And it was very interesting to look at the breakdown of the applicant pool gender-wise by country and by region. And it was clear that, you know, INSEAD would get a really good percentage of women applicants from North America, very good percentage from Russia, from China, from former um, communist bloc countries. But Western Europe was terrible. The percentage of women from Western Europe who applied was, uh, was, was, you know, extremely low. And, and so, you know, we did some focused efforts to, to try to attract more women from, from specific regions and specific countries. But it's interesting that, uh, and also India, that, you know, it's very, it was a very male dominated applicant pool and still is to, to a certain extent. I mean, there are more women applicants from India now than there were 10, 15 years ago, but it's still, still, you know, far from, far from parity. So schools have still got a long way to go to sort of cultivate that global applicant pool of, of women. True. Um, but certainly, you know, particularly the U.S. schools have, have made tremendous strides forward in, in building that parity in their student body. Yeah, they've uh, also been very generous with scholarship money to, mm. to do that, I think. And there's been a lot of uh, cultural change in the MBA programs. You know, in the past 10 years, there was that awful story in the New York Times about the Harvard Business School and how uh, women were feeling like second-class citizens at Harvard. 
And in fact, uh, men were getting a disproportionate share of all the honors at graduation, far in excess of their representation in the program. And all of that has changed. And, it, and it's taken a lot of work to change it. I, I'm interested, you know, Maria, when you were at Harvard, all those years ago, <laughs> what was it like, I mean, for a woman like you? That's an interesting question. I think part of it is that since the Harvard curriculum is a discussion-based, you know, pedagogy, it it really I mean, gosh, I don't want to I don't want to start making stereotypes, but it really favors people who have no problems raising their hand and just saying whatever comes to their mind sometimes and I felt like I felt like women sometimes you know, I certainly felt like, well, I don't want to raise my hand unless I have something really good to say, right? And I would really put all this pressure on myself to make a really good comment. And then I realized at the end of the first year that it was mostly the people who were just raising their hands and engaging and jumping in the fray who were, you know, understandably, because that's what you get graded on, and they were understandably getting the better grades. And so I think that there was there was an element of I wonder if there is sort of a slight gender thing there, whereas women were like, well, you know, I don't really want to you know, I don't really want to say it unless it's great. And then I think uh, perhaps occasionally males may be more comfortable jumping in uh, with an, oca- with an opinion or a kind, comment. Maria. <laughs> yeah, men, men will blather on about everything. I mean, this podcast is a good example of that. <laughs> I will not comment on that. Part you um, no, just kidding. But you know what I mean? Like, I felt like there was a lot more, uh, how shall I say this, comfort with BSing. Um, yeah. And so I do think that now that, but I do think that now the administration is they've been putting things in in place, like for example, making sure that that you know professors are on the lookout to call on more women and to to try to make that a little bit more more equitable, as opposed to just like well, whoever's raising their hand gets the attention. You know, I think a school. Speaking of gender gender parity, one school that I do want to call out in a positive way and give a big shout out to is Haas. Haas has actually established an entire you know, gender initiative, a gen, like a center for gender equality. And they actually, they've really been, like, I think some schools play, pay more lip service to it, but they actually at Haas, they've developed things like where I believe like students, for example, are sharing salary information with each other so they can compare and say like, okay, well, are the men getting paid? Are their job offers, are they getting paid more? And I think they have like classes and clubs where it's not just for women. Because I think sometimes the dialogue of, of women, it's like, okay, well, you're a woman and join the women's club and all of the women will support each other. But I think we're not going to see change until we get a lot of male allies to jump in also on our behalf and to use their power to, you know, to, to stand up for us, basically. Uh, and so I think Haas has been doing, a, a, has been really proactive in developing programs around that and, and also teaching men how to uh, advocate for women too. So I just wanted to give them a little a little virtual shout out. Yeah, that's that's really good. Another big trend, the rise of the GRE. You know, 10 years ago, uh, there were a lot of schools that actually still didn't accept the GRE. NCOD's a good example, right, mm. Caroline? Yes. Yes, we were late to the game with accepting the GRE and then dropped out again, accepted it for a while and then changed, school changed its mind and now is accepting it again. And this is actually a nice segue from our discussion about gender parity because one of the major reasons why schools more openly embraced a GRE is for diversity reasons. You know, there are many less than mainstream MBA candidates who might have been looking at public policy programs or public administration or some healthcare administration programs uh, and would have taken the GRE for that. 
And basically, schools wanted greater diversity in their candidates, including more women. I, yes. I believe more women take the GRE uh, as a proportion of the total mm -hmm. test takers than the GMAT even today. Yes, it's a more and, diverse pool, and it's also available yes. in more locations, I believe. Ah, right. So, and that, so that's really been a very big trend. And, you know, at some schools, the students who were admitted with a GRE exceed 25%. At Yale, that's been true for some time. And at some, uh, there are actually schools that have like 40, 50% of the MBA students in, in their full-time programs are, are GRE admits. Mm. So that, that's been a very big trend. It's also created, to me, something of an interesting dilemma. You know, GMAC with the GMAT, still the predominant test, is, you know, it's an organization that does a lot of survey work and pretty much keeps tabs on the health of the graduate management sector, to the extent that they've they've lost a fairly significant percentage of of test takers who they survey, you're getting less a reliable look at the market and how it's changing because so many people are taking the GRE. I think the big development is the fact that admission directors will tell you, and I believe them, Caroline, you tell me if I should, that there's no preference for either test anymore. There is no preference, but often the, the threshold on GRE is a little bit higher. So they expect you to do a bit better on the GRE than the GMAT in terms of the percentiles. Oh, for quants? Yes. For the quants. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, something yeah. else that, that has driven that change, John, is... So the GMAT was administered in the past by ETS, right? And and then GMAT switched GMAT switched the contract to Pearson View. That's right. And so ETS lost that market share with business schools, and so they also um, set out to build the market share of GRE because that was their way back into the business school market, and they began marketing themselves to the business school because they didn't have the GMAT to propose anymore, but they did have the GRE. So it was also driven by the competition between those test organizations, ETS and Pearson View. Yeah, really true. And both of you took the GMAT when you applied, right? Yes, mm -hmm. it was great fun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to name your scores. Okay. <laughs> Another big, big trend is where growth has occurred in the market. I mean, the past 10 years has essentially seen a significant decline, particularly in the last five years of MBA applications and MBA enrollment. And you've seen some schools with programs that had been ranked in the top 50 in U.S. news shut down. But you've also seen the incredible explosion in demand for specialty master's degrees and everything from things that we're familiar with, like accounting and finance, to things that we're less familiar with, like global chain, logistics, uh, business analytics, which is another big trend in and of itself, because the need to analyze big data so that decisions can emanate from it has become so great in business that you can't get through any MBA program without a healthy dose of business analytics. But the specialty master's market has really come of age. It's a, it's a very big market. Schools are deeply in it. And it's been a tremendous growth category at a time when MBA enrollments have been declining or have been relatively stable over the past 10 years. And the other big area is the uh, online MBA degree. 
I'm shocked at how many players there are in the United States who offer online MBA programs. There are over 325. And I only know this because U.S. News ranks online MBA programs. And so it has profiles of over 325 different programs in the U.S. alone. What, what do you two think of those, those two trends, uh, the specialty business market and the online MBA degree? On a pragmatic level, I really love the specialty MBA, the rise of the specialty MBA. While, you know, as it, you might be surprised to hear this because my specialty as a professional is MBA consulting or admissions, but I often, when people sometimes reach out to me and, and I do a consultation with them, I often will sometimes talk people out of it. And I'll say like, well, maybe, you know, you could probably get to the same job with this other alternative. Uh, and interestingly enough, I am in the process right now of trying to convince my younger brother to enroll in a master's in data analytics and not an MBA oh, for wow. many reasons, just because of it's so many different, you know, he's an appointed, he's got children, he's, you know, he's too, he's too old, frankly, to apply to the typical MBA. Anyway, for what he wants to do, which is very supply chain and logistics focused, I'm like, you don't need, you know, you, you just need to, you can just get a cheaper, faster, easier degree that will just focus on the thing that you love. So anyway, I think, I think the rise in the specialty masters is wonderful because I think not everyone necessarily needs the full two year or well, in the case of INSEAD, you know, 10 month, no one needs like some people really benefit from having that general management education. But some people, if they just want to specialize in something, I think the specialty masters is a great option. And the, you know, the employment rates out of those programs is very good. And the starting salaries are, are quite good because many of these programs are for pre-experienced people. Yeah. I, I think, you know, the, the dirty little secret of their success can be attributed to the fact that companies no longer want to train people. So if you are an undergraduate and you were a poet, you majored in English, geography, philosophy, psychology. You today have more difficulty finding the job than you used to be when companies had more heavily invested in training programs and brought more liberal arts candidates into their fold. Now they want you to basically get in there and make a contribution fairly quickly. They don't want to spend six months to a year rotating you around and training you as a liberal arts grad. And I think that this has led uh, uh, to a lot of the increased interest in specialty master's degrees, particularly for people who don't have experience. Uh, and then, of course, the online MBA, as technology has improved and made it easier and more accessible uh, to get a good education online, so has the proliferation of these programs and at some very good schools. I mean, we now have Carnegie Mellon, the University of Michigan, UNC at Chapel Hill, USC out there in, in Maria's Land in LA, uh, and others, Rice University. Uh, of course, Indiana University has had an online MBA program for a very long time. We've now seen disruptive players enter the market, University of Illinois, with a $22,000 online MBA program that has actually been the fastest growing MBA on the planet in the last four or five years. You have uh, Boston University just getting into the disruptive market with a $24,000 online MBA that just took in its first class uh, this past week. So um, that, 
huge explosion and acceptability of online learning in a way that just didn't happen before. I mean, we were all skeptical about online learning after all, because the model was University of Phoenix. And it was a stripped down, no frills education by people who were not frankly, real legitimate professors. Doesn't mean they didn't have anything good to teach, but it it lacked the legitimacy of the academy and a more studied approach to business and its different disciplines. And many of these online programs have, you know, experiential learning with assignments with uh, local companies. They have in-resident sessions. They fund clubs and organizations. In many ways, they try to mimic what an on-campus experience might be. So, and the flexibility to be able to take an online MBA while you still have your job, you don't have to quit it, you're still earning money, you don't have to go into serious debt at a time when the cost of full-time MBA programs has really gotten very high. And it's uh, much better than sitting in an evening class twice a week, where I think the, you know, the real competition isn't against full-time MBA, it's really against the executive MBA and the part-time MBA evening classes that had been so popular in the past. I mean, there is still a question over, look, how many online MBAs is McKinsey, Bain, BCG, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Google, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft going to hire? Probably not a lot. But, uh, you know, if you're someone who's sitting there and, you know, you want basic business skills that you don't have, and you're happy in your company, but want to rise in your company, accelerate your career, an online MBA is a really good bet, I think, today. I, I agree. And I'm sure that will continue to grow. I'm not sure it makes sense to have, you know, 300 plus different programs. I expect there'll be oh, no. consolidation <laughs> over time. But as we've also seen over the past few months, right, with everything going online, there's actually a huge amount of the program that can be delivered effectively online. So I'm sure that will be a boost for the online MBAs as well as the online component of, um, you know, the traditional MBAs. Yeah, that's really true. What about another trend? Who wants to, who wants to note another trend? If I could just go back, John, to the specialized masters, just so I wanted to add, yeah. add to the discussion is that um, in Europe, that was largely driven by um, the Bologna Agreement when they restructured undergraduate education and harmonized the structure of undergraduate education across Europe, um, which meant that the length of undergraduate degrees was shortened in many countries. Um, So in the past, you know, someone going through undergrad in Germany would often end up doing five, six, seven years. um, and, And that changed. And so students were coming out onto the marketplace at an earlier age than they might otherwise have done. And that triggered in Europe um, the creation of a lot of these specialized masters, pre-experienced masters, because people felt, um, you know, maybe they weren't ready to enter the marketplace or they just felt, you know, they it was the traditional thing to study for a certain number of years. And so they sort of built a different structure around that. And it might also have been, as you said, you know, companies didn't necessarily want to hire people and then have to train them. So that was a huge trigger in Europe for those um, for those, those particular programs, and, and they've been very successful. In fact, it, the master's in management in Europe is the predominant graduate degree in business. Yeah. Right? Yeah. By right. far. I mean, yeah. uh, if you compare it enrollment uh, to MBA programs in Europe, 
MBA programs would be really small compared to the master's in management programs. And some of them are very selective. I mean, it's it's uh, really hard to get in some of these programs. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, it's a competitive marketplace for, for young people going into the workforce and you know, they're lo- looking to differentiate themselves. So rather than just coming out with a bachelor's degree, you know, they're, they're looking to, um, you know, improve their, their resume by having a, a great master's as well. I think that's, you know, definitely very much the case in, in Europe. I also think, you know, in the past 10 years, we've really truly seen the globalization of business education. Uh, you see um, the European schools have gotten better than ever and are attracting incredible candidates. You see schools that are very viable in Asia yeah. and in India. Uh, that have that have risen to high ranking positions in the Financial Times, and in the U.S. schools, you've seen you know larger percentages of international students in those incoming cohorts, and obviously uh, it's all been reflected to a great degree in the curriculum because most MBA curriculums at really good schools is, is completely globalized. Now, you know you're going to get a more global experience in a European program than you would in an Asian program or in a U.S. program for sure. But I think, you know, you it, 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 there's a vast difference today in the approach toward globalism in management business education than there was 10 years ago. You agree? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, I think Darden has at UVA Darden actually has a, has a thing where every student's international project is, I believe, paid for. There was yes. even someone that gave a huge gift. Yep. A year or two ago, which is pretty cool. And I think actually, if I'm not mistaken, I think like the admissions gift that you would get sent is a passport holder with the Darden logo on it. When they, <laughs> really? The oh, that's cool. Yeah, I think if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And I and another school that comes to mind that's really had to has started to push internationalism much more is Tuck, right? Which makes sense because given their location, yes. um, I think people might look at them and say, well, if I want to do anything globally, I'm not going to get that in the middle of New Hampshire. So I, I, will, I also think that they've been doing a great job in in expanding their offerings there. True. You know, a school that's been global from the start, like an NCAD, Caroline, yeah. could it even get more global? I, I, I would think, and maybe I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm just going to make an assumption here. You tell me if I'm wrong or right. Ten years ago, the NCAD class, of course, was global, but not as global as it is today. What I mean by that is this. I bet you there are more countries represented at NCOD's incoming cohorts today than there were 10 years ago. Am I right or wrong? Yeah, no, that's true. And when I was working there, looking at the statistics over time, there was a big shift in that the school had traditionally been very um, European dominated and very Western European dominated and and related to what we were talking to earlier, also therefore quite male dominated. And with the opening of the Singapore campus in the year 2000, you know, the, the school built a much uh, stronger reputation in Asia and attracted over time far more wonderful candidates from, from that region. And so that really completely changed the, the, the profile of the class so, over the years. And so it is much more global. There's still progress that the school can make in, um, in, the, in the Americas and in, in Africa, the school has opened the, the the hub in San Francisco, and I think that will help over time to to build a, a more visible reputation in, in this part of the world. 
So there's definitely, you know, areas where they would like to have um, a bigger, you know, bigger presence and, and stronger and larger applicant pool coming through to, to increase the diversity even more. But yes, I mean, it's the most diverse cohort of, of any business school program. Yep. I wonder if the trend for the next 10 years will be, you know, COVID aside, hopefully it will eventually be manageable. Uh, If some other schools will now start also opening more and more global centers, like this is a minor point, but like Wharton now has its Wharton in San Francisco program uh, where you can go and spend a semester there um, because they understand that Philadelphia is great. But, you know, for students who really want to get that on the ground, you know, San Francisco tech experience. And so I just wonder, like, if INSEAD has had such success with the Singapore campus, and it was so smart of them, uh, Mm -hmm. because of the rise of Asia, and, you know, people are saying that uh, the 21st century is going to be the Asian, the rise of the Asian century, or I don't know exactly what the term is, but something like that. I do wonder, maybe 10 years from now, that will be the thing where maybe we will see other schools begin to establish significant campuses elsewhere in the world. So, Maria, what school, what MBA program would you nominate to be the MBA program or the school of the decade? Oh, this is too much pressure. <laughs> I feel like can I, give a, <laughs> can I give like a list? Can I can I wait? Yeah, sure you can. If you which, want to do want to do that. Can can I can I sort of wait to see which schools bribe me and which uh, <laughs> <laughs> No, oh gosh. I mean, the, I mean the good news is I think pretty much every business and I'm not just saying this is like a to avoid your question, but I do think every business school has really been doing an amazing job at keeping with the times, innovating, offering more and more things to its students and, in, and to to adapt to student demand and also globalization and global trends. You know, I I was really impressed with with how Wharton opened up that San Francisco campus. I think that that is such a smart, given that San Francisco is an engine of the economy and you can't just like, you know, transplant your entire program there. But I think that something like that was a really smart way for them to start giving their students those opportunities. So I think that they, you know, and I love the breadth of the Wharton offerings too, that they have like environmental every you know you can you can study everything from like real estate private equity super intense master of the universe stuff or you can also study social enterprise you can also study environmental they have like a business environmental i don't remember it's called bees so i i i will say them in the absence of not having had a lot of time to think about it and being put on the spot <laughs> well you know I, and i will say this too about wharton you know unlike uh, most other very top schools, okay? It's a full business school. It has an undergraduate program that is fantastic and is often considered to be the number one undergraduate business program in the country, if not the world, because undergraduate business education is not that popular elsewhere. It has a very strong executive education presence. Its executive MBA programs in both Philadelphia and San Francisco are, you know, among the most rigorous, hard to get in, uh, demanding programs in the executive MBA market. And, you know, they've, they've done a good job of holding on. I mean, it's, you know, the competition in this world is really fierce among business schools. And, you know, Wharton has done a good job and they've, they've invested tremendously in entrepreneurship as well. They have a brand new university entrepreneurship center that's just come on stream. They've been able to maintain their quality well. They were, in fact, one of the big leaders in in trying to get gender parity. I mean, among the big three, they were the first to to hit forty four percent women in their full time MBA program. So, you know, I think Wharton's a, a good pick. Caroline, what who would you pick? 
Well, I'm afraid I'm going to be rather predictable and, and go for Inciat. <laughs> All right. Yes. What? No. Yeah. I mean, this, the school has, has really flourished over the past few years, particularly thanks to the dean, Ilian Mihoff, who has been, you know, a tremendous leader. and He's done a really good uh, job. Ambassador for the school, yes, on, on all fronts. You know, he's very well-liked um, by the students, by the faculty, by the administration. You know, he's done a great um, people management job, but also been a wonderful um, figurehead for the school and ambassador and and raising funds as well, which, uh, you know, is, is very important. And and the school, the school has gone from strength to strength. And I think also, you know, that international element that has been core to what INSEAD has been about and has, you know, been sort of constantly striving to enhance over the years, that has been validated as, you know, such an important part of what young people need to learn if they want to be successful in in a business career that you need to be able to look beyond your own borders you need to be able to work with people from different cultures you can't just focus on your own backyard we work in a very global economy and that effort that INSEAD made you know 60 years ago to build something that really had that internationalism and diversity as a core part of of what it was about has, um, you know, was that was pretty unusual back then. And that has, you know, stood the school in, in put them in a very good position over time. And, and I think, you know, a lot of schools have tried to replicate it, but they have maintained a distinctive position, partly thanks to, you know, that Singapore campus, which at the time was pretty radical. A lot of people thought it was quite crazy, including people at INSEAD. There were a lot of naysayers, but it was a huge success. And now they have the campus in Abu Dhabi and the center over here. So that sort of true global mindset has it, it is really critical to the success and, and, you know, very, very valid for today's environment. And for what it's worth, in the past 10 years, they've also managed to become have the number one MBA program in the Financial Times ranking. I think that was, they were number one twice in the last 10 years, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And I remember when they, you know, made that mark, That that's a, it, it is a pretty big deal. I mean, you know, we were all skeptical of rankings, but nonetheless, rankings do drive applications. They drive interests. They increase the likelihood you recruit better faculty, and they definitely increase alumni contributions because alumni feel really good when they see their schools getting that kind of recognition. Yeah. And I remember, Caroline, uh, you wrote for us, and people can go see it, when NCAD was named the best MBA program in the world by the FT a few years ago. Caroline wrote this really smart piece about why it's NCAD's time. Mm. And, and and globalization was a core part of it. So, I, you know, I, when you look at rankings, for whatever they're worth, they do measure something. Different rankings have different emphasis on uh, different metrics. But if you look across all of the five most influential rankings out there, the Business Week, the FT, the US News, the Economist and Forbes, there are three schools that have had true, real momentum. And those schools are Yale, which really kind of finally got its act together and made very big increases in their rankings and in the quality of the of the students that they were able to attract and place. The University of Washington's Foster School, benefiting from the explosive growth of Amazon, Starbucks, 
And Microsoft in its backyard has come on really strong. I mean, when you look at their rankings performance in the last 10 years, it truly blows your mind, okay? And it's it's a high-quality program, great school. And USC, Marshall School in L.A., has really come on strong in some rankings, even appearing before UCLA. So those those three schools in particular, I think, have had tremendous rankings momentum. And underlying those increases in the rankings has been a lot of program change, a lot of smart leadership, and expansion into areas that, that made them innovators on uh, several levels, including Yale. So we have Wharton, NCI, USC, Yale, University of Washington at Foster, definitely in the running to be the best business school of the decade. Well, I think we exhausted this topic, don't you two think that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's uh, plenty more themes that you're going to address in your your 10 year anniversary piece, Don. And congratulations yes. on 10 years of Poets and Quats. I mean, you have really addressed the, the interests of candidates and and brought a different perspective to the market that w- that was lacking, right? Uh, I think um, you know your success is is really thanks to that that vision of addressing. Um, the candidates' interest and and bringing uh, you know relevant perspectives and news that that was just not just directed at at faculty and and the business schools themselves, but also at the market and and oh, bravo! It's been a, a tremendous uh, ride over over the past ten years. Well, thank you. It's been it's been a lot of fun. We've been very lucky too to have identified the market and to, you know, try to serve it as well as we can. Obviously we do some controversial things and some things work and some things don't. And that's just life. But I will say this, you know, in every one of the 10 years that we've been around, we've had record revenue. And even in this pandemic induced recession period, our our revenue is on track to hit another record, which is amazing. Right. And we've never spilled a drop of red ink. Now, if, if you know the media business, you know a lot of red ink has been spilled, pools of it. Oh, uh, Maria knows yeah. this business well. <laughs> I sure do, sadly. Uh, it's been a tough business. You know, legacy media has really suffered greatly. I think that if you find a niche and go digital, you can kind of make it work if you pick the right niche. So anyway, it's been a great ride. Caroline and Maria, thank you so much again. And for all of you out there, thanks for listening. Join us next week for Business Casual. (laughs) 